I'm going to read a portion of our sermon text now before the children's sermon, and we'll read the rest of it during the sermon itself. From 2 Samuel 16, verses 5 through 12. Now when King David came to Bahirim, there was a man from the family of the house of Saul, whose name was Shimei, the son of Gera, coming from there. He came out cursing continuously as he came, and he threw stones at David and at all the servants of King David. Shimei said thus when he cursed, Come out, come out, you bloodthirsty man, you rogue. The Lord has brought upon you all the blood of the house of Saul, in whose place you have reigned. And the Lord has delivered the kingdom into the hand of Absalom, your son. So now you are caught in your own evil, because you are a bloodthirsty man. Then Abishai, the son of Zeruiah, said to the king, Why should this dead dog curse my lord the king? Please, let me go over and take off his head. But the king said, What have I to do with you, you sons of Zeruiah? So let him curse, because the Lord has said to him, Curse David. Who then shall say, Why have you done so? And David said to Abishai and to all his servants, See how my son who came from my own body seeks my life? How much more now may this Benjamite? Let him alone and let him curse, for so the Lord has ordered him. It may be that the Lord will look on my affliction, and that the Lord will repay me with good for his cursing this day. This time we'll call the kids down to the front for their children's sermon. Bible stories like the one that we read this morning show us just how much God loves his children. God wants us to see and to understand his plan to save us by Jesus. David's life was a a picture lesson for God's children so that when Jesus came, they'd recognize him and understand the things that happened to Jesus. Remember, David was a king. Kings are rich. Kings are powerful. Everyone obeys a king. People don't make fun of kings. So what are we supposed to think of the fact that David gets chased away from Jerusalem by his own son? What are we supposed to think of the fact that David is, while he's sneaking away, someone starts throwing rocks at him and curses him? What are we supposed to think of the fact that so many people were following his evil son Absalom, they had turned away from him, the king that they had long dreamed of? Do you remember when Saul was still king? David became a great hero by killing the giant Goliath. And he led the army of Israel to many victories over their enemies. God blessed everything that David did. After after Saul died, the general of Israel's army came to David and offered to help him become king, just as God had promised. When David came before all the people, they said to him, you've always led us anyway. You've always been our leader. Even when Saul was king, you were the one who was leading us. So why now? Why is David being rejected by the people who dreamed of having him as their king? The people turned against David and they sided with Absalom, who was a murderer. God caused these things to happen so that when Jesus came, his people would recognize him as the true king of God's people. People could could look at Jesus' life and say, hey, this is exactly what happened to David. And David was Jesus' distant grandfather. For hundreds and hundreds of years, God's people waited for the Savior to be born. And then when Jesus finally came, he only had few followers, just like David. And even though Jesus healed people, fed people, defended them from the devil, they turned against him. And they sided with a murderer 
and had Jesus crucified. Even when Jesus was hanging on the cross, enduring more pain than any of us could ever imagine, people came by just to make fun. They said, I thought you were the king. Why don't you come down then? If God likes you so much, why won't he save you? Those were very wicked things to say, weren't they? But a thousand years before Jesus was born, David wrote about it in the book of Psalms. He says, everyone who sees me makes fun of me and says, if God likes him, why won't he save him? Jesus never did wrong to anyone, but his enemies accused him of doing wrong. They said that his power was really the power of the devil. They said that he was teaching lies to the people, but that wasn't true. In our Bible story today, we see this happen to David. David had never fought to make himself king. In fact, he'd always stopped his men from doing that. He wanted everyone to know that it was God who made him king. But this man Shimei said that David had even killed people so that he could be king. He was saying many bad things to David and about David. He was throwing rocks like, like a dog that he was chasing away. But David did not answer. David wouldn't let his soldiers defend him either. He scolded one who wanted to cut Shimei's head off for being so rude to the king. Do you remember when Jesus was arrested? When soldiers grabbed Jesus, Peter pulled out a sword and tried to cut a man's head off. The man ducked and Peter only cut off his ear. Jesus scolded Peter and healed the man's ear. Jesus quietly endured the shame of being insulted and mocked. And in our Bible story this morning, David is a picture lesson for us. God wanted us to recognize Jesus, the true king of God's church, a king who suffered for his people. I want you to pay close attention to the rest of the sermon because we're going to learn more about these things. After we pray, you can return to your seats. Great peace have they that love thy law, and nothing shall offend them. O dear Lord, increase our love to thy word, which the angels desire to look into, and make our souls pliable and submissive to be turned and ruled by it till we become in all things agreeable to it. Amen. Because our text is long, we're going to read it in sections before each sermon point. I've titled the sermon, Meek and Lowly in Heart, a description of Jesus from Matthew eleven twenty nine. In our text, Jesus typif David typifies Jesus as the suffering servant king who is meek and humble, who is oppressed and afflicted, who was led as a lamb to the slaughter and yet opened not his mouth. Our outline is as follows. One, Ziba's lie, that's verses 1 to 4. Two, Shimei's curse, that's verses 5 to 14. And Ahithophel's malice, number 3, and that's verses 15 through 23. So let's read verses 1 to 4, Ziba's lie. When David was a little past the top of the mountain, there was Ziba, the servant of Mephibosheth, who met him with a couple of saddled donkeys, and on them 200 loaves of bread, 100 clusters of raisins, 100 summer fruits, and a skin of wine. And the king said to Ziba, what do you mean to do with these? So Ziba said, the donkeys are for the king's household to ride on the bread and summer fruit for the young men to eat, and the wine for those who are faint in the wilderness to drink. Then the king said, And where is your master's son? And Ziba said to the king, Indeed, he is staying in Jerusalem, for he said, Today the house of Israel will restore the kingdom of my father to me. So, Ziba, so the king said to Ziba, Here, 
All that belongs to Mephibosheth is yours. And Ziba said, I humbly bow before you that I may find favor in your sight, my lord, O king. Just after David ascended the throne, he started looking for anyone in Saul's household with whom he could keep his covenant with Jonathan. And he hears that Saul has a servant, uh, a steward named Ziba. He meets Ziba. Ziba informs him that Jonathan has a son named Mephibosheth. And in honor of his covenant with Jonathan, David adopts Mephibosheth as one of his own sons. We meet Ziba here, and we find out something about his character. We must remember, first of all, the status of household servants in Israel. It was not their persons that was owned, it was their labor. And for that reason, it was not impossible that a servant might inherit his master's possessions should the master have no heir. If there was an heir, then the servant would serve the heir. Modern views aside, it's not immoral or unjust. And that doesn't mean, of course, that an unscrupulous servant wouldn't engage in subterfuge in order to take advantage of his master's death. And that's what we see in our text. The only living heir of Saul's house, and I mean a direct descendant, was Mephibosheth. When we first learn of his existence, he's living off the grid in Lodabar. Ziba, of course, has no way of knowing what David was thinking. He probably thought that David was hunting down all the remnants of the family to put them to death. That's probably why he gave up Mephibosheth so quickly. When David reveals his plan to adopt Mephibosheth, Ziba's plans are quashed. Without Mephibosheth, Ziba owns Saul's estate. Everything would be his. When David adopted Mephibosheth, he made Ziba steward of the property for Mephibosheth. Ziba has been acting like he owns the land, and suddenly he's made caretaker for someone else. That clearly annoyed him. And in our text, we see Ziba ply a bad situation to his own advantage. No sooner has David gotten over the Mount of Olives, Ziba is there to meet him. Our text says, there was Ziba. Like, surprise! It's kind of suspicious. Ziba, uh, David had left Jerusalem in a hurry, and yet somehow, despite that fact, not only is Ziba aware that David is making a mad dash from the city, he's got enough time to put a little something together, two donkey loads of provisions. Someone has been feeding Ziba information. Court turmoil has pushed Mephibosheth back into hiding. So David asks Ziba about his welfare, and here's where Ziba strikes. He's planned for this. He lies about Mephibosheth, charging him with a crime that is as unbelievable as it is impractical. Mephibosheth, he claims, sees this rift in the kingdom as a way to regain his family's fortune. Ziba says, Mephibosheth believes that Israel is going to restore the kingdom to him. Now, it's a manifest lie. But Ziba's surprisingly convenient presence and the tokens of support lend credibility to his lie. David's own son has betrayed him, and so he's pretty much disposed to distrust everybody. And Ziba deflects attention from himself with the element of surprise and some gifts. Under normal circumstances, David would have seen through this. I mean, it's crazy on the face of it. There is no way that Israel would turn the throne over to a man who couldn't physically lead them into battle. But never mind that. Mephibosheth has never been anything but loyal. He has his father's spirit. He's not a schemer. Sadly, David believed the lie, 
and ruled exactly the way that Ziba wanted. Mephibosheth's estate is seized and given to Ziba. Now we talk about David as a foreshadowing of Christ, and here's one way that he points to Christ by way of his shortcomings. In Luke 12, verses 13 and 14, a man comes to Jesus and says, Teacher, tell my brother to divide the inheritance with me. And Jesus said, Man, who made me a judge or ruler or arbitrator over you? And then Jesus turned to the crowds and said, Take heed and beware of covetousness, for one's life does not consist in the abundance of the things he possesses. Though David is misled, he still shows us something beautiful. Even while harried and hurried, even under great stress and great duress, he is busy administering justice. Remember just before Jesus' arrest, and even during it, we find him giving special attention to his disciples and their needs. We find him healing the ear of Malchus, guaranteeing that attention isn't deflected from himself to his followers. He alone must suffer, and he must suffer innocently. David, though misled, is trying to make sure that no one but he suffers the wrath of Absalom. And that leads us to the second part of our text, Shimei's curse from verses 5 through 12. Now, when King David came to Bahirim, there was a man from the family of the house of Saul, whose name was Shimei, the son of Gera, coming from there. And he came out cursing continuously as he came, and he threw stones at David and at all the servants of King David. Shimei said thus when he cursed, Come out, come out, you bloodthirsty man, you rogue. The Lord has brought upon you all the blood of the house of Saul, in, in whose place you have reigned. And the Lord has delivered the kingdom into the hand of Absalom, your son. So now you are caught in your own evil because you are a bloodthirsty man. Then Abishai, the son of Zeruiah, said to the king, Why should this dead dog curse my lord the king? Please let me go over and take off his head. But the king said, What have I to do with you, you sons of Zeruiah? So let him curse, because the Lord has said to him, Curse David. Who then shall say, Why have you done so? And David said to Abishai and all his servants, See how my son, who came from my own body, seeks my life. How much more now may this Benjamite? Let him alone. Let him curse. For so the Lord has ordered him. It may be that the Lord will look on my affliction, and that the Lord will repay me with good for his cursing this day. Now this incident contains similar elements to the previous incident. Both involve Saul's household. Both involve false accusations. Both take advantage of David's misfortune. Had David been seated securely in Jerusalem, neither Ziba nor Shimei would have done what we find them doing here. Both exhibit rebellion against the Lord's anointed. They are therefore both insults to Christ. In Ziba's case, he acts as if Christ is not omniscient, as if one can pull a fast one on God. And Shimei acts as if schism in the church is Christ's fault. Shimei is a relative of, of Saul. He's not a close relative because he's not claiming the throne. But he does have his family pride. And that in and of itself isn't a bad thing. In fact, it's sinful not to honor the achievements of our ancestors. Shimei's sin, though, is that he views the church as a human institution. And thus, he misinterprets what the king of Israel is meant to signify. The king of Israel is not the alpha male who defeats all challengers and establishes his clan as uncontested rulers. 
The king of Israel was a picture sign of the Christ. The church is the kingdom of God. And therefore, any human king who occupied that office had it by mere grace. It wasn't earned. And if you don't believe me, read First and Second Chronicles. See the behavior of David's descendants and ask yourself if they had the throne by merit. Secondly, we see here how people often pick sides in church controversies. Simei curses and slanders David, and every one of his charges are manifestly and blatantly false. Because we saw how careful David was, how meticulous he was in his behavior that, so that no one could ever say that he brought himself to the throne. Shimei doesn't care about facts. He's motivated by party spirit. Rather than submit to God, he harbors bitterness. And the bitterness which he's aimed at David was really against God. Now let's make a practical application. The most common cases when loyalties split a church is when a pastor has to be replaced or when doctrinal or denominational troubles split a church. In a very real sense, Israel is undergoing both simultaneously. On the one hand, Saul had died and needed to be replaced. On the other hand, long before Saul died, God had already revealed that power was not going to go the way of royal succession. Hence, a rift was already in place. There were people who knew that God had anointed David, who served David and worked for his cause. And there, there, then there were those who felt it was their duty to remain loyal to Saul. Now this whole ordeal shows us how unchristian people often are. How carnal and fleshly their thinking is. This was a church affair. And yet we find men behaving as if it per pertained to a mere human institution. That's the explanation for all the turmoil, all the dissatisfaction, and all schism within the church. Men behave as if the church is a human institution. Now in human institutions, school boards, city councils, there may be whispering campaigns, character assassinations, other dubious power plays. People clamor for whatever human authority the possession vests them with. But the church of God is not a human institution. It is a divine institution. When people resort to whispering campaigns, character assassinations, and power plays to grasp power for themselves or tilt power in favor of their guy, they are denying that the church is God's. I'll say this as bluntly as I can. You are morally responsible to God as a member of this church or whatever church you're a member of. To submit to Christ, to attend worship, to frequent the sacraments and support the church's work. And it doesn't matter what you think about anyone in a position of authority. I don't like Reverend Schatz. I'm not happy with Pastor Way. So what? You just don't go to church for years at a time? Be angry all you want, but you are Shimei. You behave as if the church isn't God's, but yours. As if God doesn't overrule committees to place, put in place leaders he has chosen. You treat the church as if it were a school board made up of petty power addicts who feel like their measly responsibilities make them virtual gods on earth. 
The church is not a party system where sides vie with each other for access to church funds. Apostate churches, yes, sure, but not true churches. And when you let your emotions be drawn so hard to one side or the other that you cannot or will not participate in the life of the church, you're behaving in the same shameful way Shimei did when he cursed and insulted David. I mean, look, if your name's not on the church membership roll and you never darken the doors of the church, it ain't no skin off my back. But for someone who professes the Christian faith, and that profession is backed up by baptism, confirmation, and membership records, and yet he never or seldom, if ever, attends church, I can tell you right now, his best excuse is no better than any of Shimei's lies against David. David didn't connive for the throne. God put him there. And even granting that the trouble is the result of David's sins, they weren't sins against Saul. The church is not a human institution. And even in apostate churches, God puts in charge the people he wants, if for no other reason than to judge the wicked. This incident also shows us how even the right side can be plagued by carnal attitudes. Abishai, an officer in David's army, reacts to Shimei with the exact same spirit of error. He too behaves as if the church were merely a human institution. His solution is to execute Shimei. That'll shut him up. It takes a very wise and cautious leader to subdue the unwholesome loyalty of those who side with him. Abishai sided with David, God's anointed, but not for Christ's sake. And that made his loyalty a liability rather than an asset. David rebuked him, and in the rebuke, David reveals Christ-like character. This is a lot like the incident with Nabal. David almost killed Nabal, if you remember. And had David done so, his reputation would have been tarnished forever. Killing Nabal would have been the sin of treating the church as a mere human institution. Providentially, God sent Abigail, whose calm and genteel spirit diffused a potentially explosive situation. David learned the Lord's lesson from that event. He understands now that God is the true king of his church, and therefore, attacks against his person and character can be borne with patience. Shimei's real enemy is God, not David. Shimei may not realize that, but David does. So this is what David means when he says, So let him curse, because the Lord has said to him, Curse David. Who then shall say, Why have you done so? What David means is that Shimei's beef is with God. When you moan and groan about this pastor or that pastor, that your vote got overridden at a meeting, or that consistory opted for something you're not happy with, your gripe isn't with the chair of the committee, the president of the consistory, or the swing voter who you think got swayed by phony arguments. The beef is with God. Because the church isn't yours, it's his. David understood his condition. His own son was rebelling against him. So there was nothing unusual in the fact that a wounded kinsman of Saul might revel in his apparent downfall. But even the fact that his own son was the cause of all of his troubles wouldn't have made David so meek in the face of Shimei's abuse had he not seen God's overruling hand chastening him. Because although God never said to Shimei, hey, go curse David, 
God had made him an instrument of chastening. And therefore, David was willing to bear it meekly. David is not unlike his greater son, who centuries later says, The cup which my father hath given me, shall I not drink of it? Different as were the causes of David's and Jesus' sufferings, yet there is a remarkable resemblance in the way that they endured them. David's meek resignation as he goes out of Jerusalem bears a strong resemblance to Jesus' meek resolution as he was led out of Jerusalem. David's tender concern for his people's welfare as he climbed Mount Olivet strongly resembles the tender concern Christ expressed to the daughters of Jerusalem as he climbed Mount Calvary. David's forbearance with Shimei is much like Christ's forbearance when he prayed, Father, forgive them for they know not what they do. Both David and Jesus had a clear sense that their sufferings were ordained by God. David owed his sufferings to himself. Jesus owed them to the relationship that he assumed as the sin-bearing surety of his people. But both were ordained by God and both of them knew it. It is truly beautiful to see David so meek and lowly under the sense of his sins. He is living the spirit of Habakkuk's words, I will watch to see what he says to me and what I will answer when I am corrected. Our catechism teaches us that God overrules and ordains all the evils that he sends upon us in this valley of tears. David understood this. And hence David says, it may be that the Lord will requite me good for his cursing this day. David felt that all he had suffered was just and righteous because it came from God's hand. David knew that he deserved to be chastened by any instrument God might appoint. And even if these means might be grossly unfair to him, though Shimei's curses were unrighteous and cruel, though the accusation that he had seized Saul's kingdom by bloodshed was outrageously false, it was better to bear the wrong and leave justice in God's hands. Because God hates unfair dealing, and when his servants receive it, he will rectify and redress it in his own time and in his own way. And this, is, of course, is a very important lesson for all servants of God who are exposed to harsh and unfair criticism, to abusive language and the mistreatment of their opponents. Vengeance is mine, saith the Lord, I will repay. Thirdly, we come to Ahithophel's malice. Let us read it, verse 15. Meanwhile, Absalom and all the people, the men of Israel, came to Jerusalem, and Ahithophel was with them. Then Absalom said to Ahithophel, Give advice as to what we should do. Then Ahithophel said to Absalom, Go into your father's concubines, whom he has left on the to keep the house, and all Israel will hear that you are abhorred by your father. Then the hands of all who are with you will be strong. So they pitched a tent for Absalom on top of the house. And Absalom went into his father's concubines in the sight of all Israel. Now the advice of Ahithophel, which he gave in those days, was as if one had inquired at the oracle of God. So was all the advice of Ahithophel, both with David and with Absalom. We only have a couple of brief comments about this section of the texts. Ahithophel's advice is wicked beyond belief. I had the same nagging fear this, this week that I had a few weeks ago when I preached on Amnon's crime against his sister. It was the nagging fear of failing to convey the absolute abominable wickedness of these people. 
Because this could easily be the plot of a TV show. People have grown accustomed to viewing filth like this as entertainment. I mean, think of Tamar, right? She is destroyed, desolate, as she says, because she can never enter marriage as a virgin. Who today feels that pain? You might, you know, many of the most popular cable shows portray fornication, adultery, sodomy, incest, and other revolting evils, and yet millions of viewers, even some professing Christians, gladly wallow in this filth and defend it by calling it art. How can I make such people see that Amnon and Ahithophel are monsters who should be hanged, shot, burned, and hanged and shot again, when they regularly root for similar scoundrels in their favorite shows. You might expect this kind of degeneracy in the pagan court of a heathen king, but Israel was the Old Testament church, and this wicked counsel was given by a church elder. Never imagine for a second that church membership, or that even holding office in the church, makes a man holy. Ahithophel is as despicable as any citizen of Sodom and Gomorrah, and yet he is an elder in the visible church. Now, secondly, we see by way of this abominable evil that God was overruling all for the sake of his anointed. Because the court was so brain-dead with perversion and depravity, their sensibilities were dulled so that they failed to detect the obvious. Hushai, David's friend, was a spy. God was overruling these wicked men to undermine their plans. God was doing this for David for the sake of Christ. And Scripture testifies frequently to the fact that God brings the counsel of the wicked to naught for the sake of Christ and His church. Psalm 33, verse 10, The Lord brings the counsel of the nations to nothing. He makes the plans of the peoples of no effect. Proverbs 19.21 There are many plans in a man's heart. Nevertheless, the Lord's counsel, that will stand. Isaiah 8.10 Devise a plan, but it will fail. State a proposal, but it will not stand. For God is with us. Isaiah 44.24-25 I am the Lord who turns wise men backward and makes their knowledge foolishness. Let's tie everything up. David, as a foreshadowing of Christ, meekly endures the slanders and lies of his foes, like a lamb led to the slaughter who is reviled, yet answers not a word. Like Christ, the suffering servant king, who left the joys and bliss of heaven to suffer in dignity and hatred, David leaves his glory behind in Jerusalem and meekly endures mistreatment and slander. Shimei, as much says, he trusted in the Lord, let him rescue him. The very words the Jewish priest said to Christ as he hung on the cross. Paul exhorts us to this same demeanor in Philippians 2. When he writes, let this mind be in you, which was also in Christ Jesus, who being in the form of God did not consider it robbery to be equal with God, but made himself of no reputation. Christ endured unspeakable shame and humiliation because of the joy set before him. David endured shame and humiliation as a foreshadowing of his greater son. And both their lives give an example to us. Let us pray.